today on Ag News Daily. GAG is a subsidiary of Dominion Builders, so that's been around for about 40 years or so, but DAG has been around for a little over 10 years now. Uh, Originally getting into greenhouses for the produce side, actually uh, working with companies such as Bright Farms and so forth, building multiple of their uh, greenhouses. November 15th, 2023, the Ag News Daily Podcast, Tanner and Delaney hanging out together. Well, we're really still not together together, right, Delaney? Do you want to be? Well, just, uh, I mean, I kind of need if we had one of those nice studios where we'd sit down and plop and read the news. And uh, well, that's kind of old fashioned, isn't it? I suppose. But, you know, you've got your studio probably almost finished. So I suppose we could do that sometimes. Oh, that'd be kind of neat, but uh doesn't really make a difference to the way these episodes work out. That's the bonus of technology. You're down there. It's down there, right? Kansas City? <laughs> yes, I'm south of you in Kansas City this week at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters Annual Convention. That's right. Well, you're picking up all kinds of good stuff there. I've just got a little bit more weather. Kind of seems like more of the same token as we continue to look here. We've got more fire risks out there, just different states in the news. Much of central and southern Oklahoma have an uptick in potential wildfires. They have dry conditions, winds that gust up to 20 miles per hour. Southerly winds will continue to bring warm temperatures into the Midwest. Central Indiana dry weather will also continue with their risk of fires continuing to climb. In Iowa, overnight temperatures only dropped, Delaney, to where normal highs are. So we started almost above average highs here in Iowa. We do have a chance to reach 70 degrees in our region. But there's a combination of dry atmosphere and low fuel moisture as far as fire fuel. That is going to continue to have increased danger for wildfires. Whether they're small or large scale across most of the middle part of the United States, Delaney. Yes, and uh, it'll be nice to have a little warmer temperatures, although a little, little thrown off. You know, I don't think by Thanksgiving we'll be still seeing those warmer conditions. I think things are going to cool off. Is that the little longer-term outlook there? It is, certainly. But I would say if you are a Christmas light decorator on the exterior of your property, this would be the week to get those up. And I'm sure you won't be disappointed after you complete in these warm temperatures. Mm, that's a good good tip. I'm gonna I'm gonna take you up on that tip and try to try to get mine up this weekend. Uh, but Tanner, as we look at South American weather, October marked the driest month for Panama since record keeping began in 1950. And as we know, this water shortage has led to a reduced amount of traffic heading through the Panama Canal. Tanner, this is a major waterway system to allow shippers, especially agricultural shippers, to get products where they need to go. Now, longer range forecasts here are expecting that by February, only 18 ships per day will be able to go through the canal, which is roughly half the number from the year prior. This situation is going to affect virtually every type of commodity and manufactured product, but it's most critical for the energy sector. As we look at previous years and shipments going through the Panama Canal, nearly half of the goods measured by weight passing through the canal's canal's locks consisted of oil and gas-based products. 
And this issue is going to become even more relevant as the U.S. is starting to export propane. And uh, we saw in October already, propane shipments reached 2.1 million barrels per day, which was up pretty significantly compared to 2022. But that number is expected to be a short-term blip on the radar here, Tanner. Longer term, really expecting to see things tighten up. Uh, which I guess is good news for the U.S. having available propane sources, but it certainly isn't for other parts of the world. Yeah, well, certainly that is certainly, I bet another headline we will keep tabs on. Also want to share with you NASA Harvest, which is a new consortium that NASA commissioned, is led by the University of Maryland, and they're looking to use their satellite data for enhanced food and agricultural uses. They're currently or recently explored planting dates across the Midwest. And Ken Free dove into their analysis. The study looked at how planting dates impacted yields. NASA's interested in the timing of planting and its influence on carbon cycles, soil erosion, water use, and productivity. So when they took a look at this, Planting soybeans early was one item that was identified as a way to increase your yields five to 10 bushel. In central Illinois, they are stating that uh, results for percentage of soybeans that will go in ahead of corn is growing. They are continuing to keep an eye on how this works. But from central Illinois all the way up to Canada, it, according to NASA, pays to plant your soybeans earlier. Not just waking up and planting soybeans in cold field temperatures is what Ken states, but ultimately being ready, that way you can get your soybeans in the ground um, in a timely fashion. If you plant corn and soybeans at the same time, NASA data is stating that you'll have better results as far as those go. So it'll be interesting to continue to keep an eye on what NASA, their satellite and technology is going to be able to provide farmers and agriculture and those that are looking at crop production based upon the data that they can collect. So that's a new consortium that is obviously funded by the USDA in joint with NASA. Um, and like I said, University of Maryland is running that. So hopefully we'll get more data to share coming out of those results, Delaney. Well, Tanner, we got some interesting results out of a recent Bayer CEO meeting. Uh, Bear CEO Bill Anderson, who is a fairly new CEO for the organization, announced on a recent conference call that he's going to be really shaking up the status quo for the organization and reorganization is possible, as well as separation of some of their potential product lines. Rumors have been circulating for months now, and we finally saw it confirmed by the CEO last week during their earnings call. Tanner, I've talked to a few folks here at NAFB convention, and they said this earnings call was a little ugly as far as maybe the outlook here for Bayer's crop sciences team in particular. He most notably mentioned how glyphosate really has not been a product that has served the company well, especially when you consider all of the different lawsuits and legal parameters and battles that have been going on for Bayer. And he did mention specifically on the call that beyond maintaining their three main divisions, the main option would be a separation of either consumer health or crop science. But it does sound like he is leaning more heavily towards spinning off the crop science division and or potentially selling it or getting rid of it altogether. This would, of course, be 
very scary for folks that work directly within that crop science division. But, you know, as you look at revenue for the year, certainly a lot of that was probably coming from some of the lawsuits and settlements that they've been having here with glyphosate, specifically at the center point. But he said by the end of 2024, Bayer will need to remove multiple layers of management and coordination and that will include a significant reduction in the workforce. So he is certainly making big signals here, Tanner, that Bayer is on track to downsize pretty substantially within the next year. Another earnings call that might not have been great this week was with Tyson's Foods. On Monday, their forecasted revenue for the next fiscal year, according to what Wall Street was estimating, was well below targets after fourth quarter sales missed expectations due to falling chicken and pork prices and of course the slowing demand for beef their shares dropped 3.6 percent by 1 p.m on november 13th and are down another three to four percent since then obviously tyson's beef business its largest unit has been struggling u.s cattle inventories are have declined to record lows like we reported here before but chicken and pork businesses have excess supplies, so retail prices have been driven down. Demand has suffered from a strong dollar that limits U.S. beef exports, but current operating environments make it difficult, according to Tyson's chief financial officer. They're looking in 2024 to make improvements across all of their operations. The company has been cutting jobs and closing U.S. chicken processing plants to control costs. In August, the company is planning to sell its China poultry business. Uh, John R. Tyson said the business is going to continue as usual, but the company will evaluate every layer of their company. They should have a better year-over-year cash flow and profitability for 2024, but they're looking to seek improvements above their second half of 2023, Tyson reported adjusted operating margins of 1.8% in its chicken business, which was below where they had been historically, but they will continue to keep an eye on where their margins are impacting. But I think that's another company that might see some layoffs and some slimming down in 2024, Delaney. Yeah, it certainly sounds like the trend is heading in that direction, Tanner, which is of course what the Fed was going for when they started raising interest rates. So I think that's going to be a big topic of a discussion this week is how many more interest rates do we see from the Fed and are they accomplishing what they want to accomplish? It was interesting yesterday, we had a good discussion with a speaker about the Fed raising interest rates compared to, I believe, 1994 when they raised them fairly fairly quickly. And that really pushed the economy into a recession. However, this time they're really trying to do it in slow stable increments. And that certainly hasn't pushed us into a major recession yet. So perhaps they are accomplishing that goal. Who knows? But they certainly have helped to accomplish less purchases going on in the agricultural space as related to equipment sales. The October 2023 Ag Tractor and Combine Sales Report shows that four-wheel drive tractors are up about 12.6% in October compared to October of 2022, but some sales in other categories, such as combines, were down for the year so far in October. As we look at October's four-wheel drive sales, they were up 
uh, as I mentioned, 12.6% sold 726 four-wheel drive tractors in October. And for year-to-date, four-wheel sales are up 36%, Tanner. So that's pretty high there. As far as farmers swapping out for new equipment, it might also be an indication that, hey, a lot of farmers are recognizing we're going to have some tougher years ahead. So they're trying to get equipment now while they still have a little extra jingle in their pocket. But greatest sales declining were combines. Sales of combines in October compared to October of 2022 were down 52%. Tanner, that's a difference of 866 combines compared to October of 2022. Now, as we look at earlier this year, combine sales were up 132% in February uh, in contrast there. So year to date, combine sales remain positive of about 4.5% compared to the same time period year to date in 2022. That's right. Well, then we look at the land markets, another... uh, update that we've got there. Midwest farmland sales slowed to only a four, 5% increase. However, Indiana saw a 16% increase in its land values, but the state of Iowa Delaney was stagnant. Uh, as we continue to take a look at where land values go, the Cyclone State, of course, this article says the Hawkeye State, the Cyclone State remained pretty much stagnant over quarter, over quarter. Land values in the Midwest, though, got to 5% as ag bankers taking part in the Chicago Federal Reserve Survey. Indiana notched a 16% increase, which was a surprise. So a couple of surprises to ag lenders across the Midwest. Still seeing increases from a year ago, but generally they're smaller. We've seen more no sales. And now we've got larger inventories of land auctions coming on in the fourth quarter. It's had a very good year. Crops, even though dry weather hit, Iowa was hit harder by drought than others. But overall, ag bankers in the Midwest expect land prices to hold steady during the final quarter. After two years of record high income, the outlook for lower income with corn and soybean prices down by 20% and interest rates up, their prediction for the economy on the ag side is going to be stagnant, but still strong. Nationwide, the agricultural economy softened in the third quarter, according to the Kansas City Federal Reserve. Profit opportunities have thinned, and these producers that are ahead of the cycle are the ones that will have the best opportunity for increased revenue in 2024. So interesting to see there how each state has its own separate land market, but across the Midwest, still seeing a positive gain in values for land. Uh, But there might be opportunities presenting themselves in your area, right, Delaney? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think this is another big discussion point as we head into 2024 and one that I've heard at a lot of conferences lately. So I'm sure we'll hear more conversations around land values heading into uh, this week's convention, Tanner. But we're also going to be talking commodity markets at convention this week and a longer term outlook for 2024. But I have the short term outlook for today's overnight markets if you want to dive in there. Yeah, let's take a look. Awesome. Well, as we look at the December corn contract today, heading into the opening session, down two and a half cents at 475 and three quarters. New crop beans down four and a half cents at 1307. December hard red winter wheat up a quarter of a cent this morning at 640. Chicago December wheat down a penny and a half at 570 and a half. And December spring wheat down a penny and a quarter at 733 and a quarter. 
As we take a look at the livestock markets and see where they closed yesterday, December live cattle added 92 and a half cents to close at a buck 75.85. January feeder cattle added 70 cents to open this morning at 2.29. And December lean hogs shed $1.05 yesterday. We'll open this morning at 72.30. Well, folks, today we are chatting about a very different subject than we usually cover here on the podcast, chatting today with Jeff Lair, the Director of Architecture and Engineering for DAG, a cannabis infrastructure company. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Yep. Thank you guys for having me. So Jeff, let's dig into a little bit about your background and how you found yourself as Director of Architecture and Engineering for DAG. Um, yeah, sure. So I got into the industry, uh, the campus industry, about eight years ago, uh, working for another company outside in Denver. Um, and then from there, it's kind of developed. Uh, we were kind of just doing the piping systems and then slowly in the lighting and then kind of grew into the whole facility. And then pretty much just from seeing all odds and ends of all over the place, kind of growing into my role now of being able to oversee all design aspects, vetting all equipment and the actual construction of all projects. Um, throughout my years here, I probably commissioned and designed over 200 facilities throughout North America, ranging from you know gas stations to million square feet. So definitely I've seen it all throughout the country. And so DAG specifically focuses on kind of that infrastructure approach to wide scale cannabis production. Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah, on, well, more on the commercial side, the larger scale things. So we do the entire thing of design or plan, design and build the facility. So we try to integrate the entire thing under one umbrella. Got it. Okay. And Jeff, the history of DAG, how long have you guys been around as a company? Uh, DAG, it's a subsidiary of Dominion Builders. So that's been around for about 40 years or so. But DAG has been around for a little over 10 years now. Uh, Originally getting into greenhouses for the produce side, actually uh, working with companies such as Bright Farms and so forth, building multiple of their uh, greenhouses. And then from there, we saw the aspect of this works for ag, the cannabis side needs this. And then we started moving into the agricultural side, or sorry, into the cannabis side, uh, covering about seven states so far. Um, And then going from retrofits to greenfield projects, meaning new projects, greenhouses, indoor warehouses, um, and yeah, just kind of expanding all over because we found that the approach for uh, definitely the agriculture mixed with the construction, it's the whole different beast that people need to uh, understand from the whole design aspect. Absolutely. And you mentioned you've been in this industry for quite a few years now. As you look at the cannabis space, obviously there's the issue of legalization, but walk us through kind of the history of where you've been within the cannabis space and where you think it's headed. Um, yeah. So when I first joined, um, I was a little hesitant to, to even enter the industry because uh, it was still a little taboo back then about eight, year, eight years ago. I didn't feel kill the resume or whatnot, but it's definitely become a lot more professional now. Um, all the conventions we meet, all the clientele we meet, are, are more on the professional side. Um, they understand where this industry is going in larger and larger. Um, I have seen when I was up in Canada, they went too large, too fast, and then it went down to a lot more smaller grows. But just the quality overall is it's better quality. It's more contained. It's knowing that your GMP standards are, have to get higher and higher. In case the country ever does go wreck, then you know that the facility that you're building will hit all the standards for all the other states as well too. So everyone does have that uh, in their mind as they're building now. Mm, that's a really great point to make. Uh, thanks for making that one too, about just the taboo. And it's really starting to become a little bit more standardized across the space. So as you look at 
you know, the controlled environment that you mentioned agriculture and cannabis require, how does that change or guide your approach that you take within the construction of these facilities? Um, well, getting before even the construction, it's big on planning. So just from my role before commissioning a bunch of facilities, um, you have to understand all the operational flow, the maintenance that goes into these things. Um, a lot of people that we meet new to the industry, they're more investor based where they're have people telling them what they want, what they want out of it. So they'll say we want more canopy because more canopy equals more product, more profit, obviously. But if you keep maximize your canopy too much, then you pretty much lose all your operational flow, all your maintenance. And I always tell people, if, if some of your maintenance goes down, your head house, your watering room goes down, it doesn't matter how much canopy you have, you have to dial that back because it's all for not. So when we look into it, we look at planning the whole operation as one before we get into the construction. We make sure um, all the equipment works with each other, all the operational flow works with each other from the head house to the back of the house, all the way up to the CEO suite. Um, so we want a whole flow to work together. Um, and then when we come to the construction, because we did the planning phase, we know exactly what we're building, why we're building it, the timelines need to be built, and so forth. If you have different entities do different parts of each one, there's so much gap. And, you know, I always do the thing of, you know, the game Whisper Down the Lane, where as you keep talking to people, you keep losing more and more information. If you have one entity throughout the entire process, information is not lost. You can hit your timelines a lot faster. And more importantly, you'll stay on your budget a lot better. Now, Jeff, you mentioned that the company has previously also worked in kind of the produce space within right. agriculture and food. How does that space compare to the cannabis space? Um, there's definitely a lot of overlaps for that because all the uh, the main components are all there. So you have to have your your aspect of your head house or your you know all, your nutrient delivery, your packaging, your automation, your centralized system, your offices. You want to have that in one area, and then your your canopy or your produce or anything out in the other area. But the main thing for us is our controlled environment. So we have to understand what your end product is, what your end goals are, and able to control that environment to hit your needs best. So a lot of people come in who are just, say, a, a general builder, general contractor, not familiar with the ag industry, and they will just build it to build it off the plants, not understanding you know, how important it is to have that controlled environment. So if you're right temperatures, you're right humidities, CO2 levels, light levels, all to be right there. We're not building an office space just to condition people. Now we're adding tons and tons of water into these facilities, tons of exact set points that everyone needs. So that kind of helps us, you know, lay out the whole process, but that's where the overlap of the produce to the canvas we always see is. Jeff, as you think about the type of growers that you're most commonly working with, you mentioned you're really more on the commercial side, but you know, what location are most of these folks in, or are there any common characteristics that unite these groups of people or, or products? That's kind of the one fun part of this industry that I'd say there's no general characteristics with anyone. Uh, you can meet that farmer from, from nowhere, especially on the canvas side. I would call them sometimes, they're lured as uh, basement growers. So the people who, you know, might've grown on their own or, you know, did um smaller style of 12 plants, 15 plants, but now they're trying to maximize all the way up to, you know, say 30,000 square feet of grow. So you have to bring them into this industry, show them what they're doing. Whereas we also have a lot of other people who work with MSOs or multi-state operators coming from these, these big giant conglomerate ones coming down, either starting on their own or wants to try something new. So we have people ranging from all over the place, um, small grows, not understanding, you know, how much actually goes into it. It's a big one too, they're budgeting. Um, you know, we'll get a lot of people say, we well, you know, have a couple, you know, maybe $2 million. Can I build this 30,000 square foot facility? 
then you have to kind of bring them into the real world of how expensive equipment is and all that stuff. So, um, but yeah, there's people all, all over the place that we work with. Um, but I think that's one of the funnest aspects of this whole industry. Awesome. Jeff, as you look at the future of this space, what do you think are some exciting technologies or advancements that are going to be coming down the pipeline? Um, for advancements, well, I always tell people originally, like one of my one of my big pushes is on the main side. So whenever you have the new technology in there, in our new grows, especially the indoors, if we have an opportunity to do it, we always put RD rooms in there to let people test it out rather than just go full-fledged into it. Um, but definitely the big thing we're seeing now is a lot of the LED lights are coming into place. Um, water automation, it's it's pretty impressive how the whole system works to get you your exact levels or pH and EC as you're doing all your water techniques with different injection units, different environmental controls. Um, they've been around for a little bit, but now that there's so much fine tuning into it, all the record recording, um, it's all based web-based, a lot of it. So you don't even have to be in the facility. You can still check on your facility, know what's going on, making sure that you know nothing gets out of whack and you always have full control over your whole thing. And I think that's one of the, one of the neatest aspects of it. Fantastic, Jeff. Well, thanks so much for joining today. Certainly appreciate your insight into this space. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks again for hanging out with us, listeners. We appreciate each and every one of you. We'll be back again tomorrow with more great content. So, Delaney, what do you say for today? Should we let them go? Let's let them go. 